0: 65,498
1: square miles. We've got a lot to
2: cover, so let's get to it. This is Spanning the State. Here's your host, Kristen Bry.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the show where we highlight stories from across the state and break down headlines that affect the whole state. Today we are flying planes in Oshkosh, checking out the water in Cleveland, riding a bus from Bayshore to Oak Creek, and celebrating the sixth birthday of a Wisconsin NBA All-Star. And my co-host today is Dan Schaefer, founder and publisher of the Recombobulation Area. Welcome back, Dan. How are you today? Good afternoon, Kristen.
3: I'm very excited to be back here, spanning the state here with you once again on 620 WTMJ.
1: Any uh, new stories that you've been working on, that you've been following?
3: Yeah, well, it's, uh, there's always a lot to recombobulate on. Uh, it's, we have a very discombobulating news cycle in the state of Wisconsin. So always a good place to recombobulate. Since I, since I was last here with you, a pretty typical mix of stuff that okay. you might see uh, at the recombobulation area. Uh, so I wrote a story last week about a potential state Senate candidate who might be running uh, in the North Shore suburbs, Democrat Jody havish Uh She might be running again. I wrote a, a published a guest column uh, from uh, our friend Angela Lang at Black Leaders Organizing for Communities. Uh, she joined uh, uh, folks from the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign and voces de la Frontera to write about... Uh, Wisconsin Elections Commissioner Bob Spindell. They have some, some fairly strong views uh, on the election commissioner there. Uh, and also, I wrote a little bit about the Brewer Stadium, a topic ah. that I have written a bit about here and there. A, a story I published uh, at uh, Milwaukee Record, kind of looking at a what-if for the Brewer Stadium. We, You know, many of the decisions uh, about, the, about the stadium... Kept the status quo in a lot of ways for for the Brewer Stadium, for the I-94 project there. So I kind of went through a little bit of a what-if exercise. What if instead of uh, the stadium freeway there, we had... Bob Euchre Boulevard. What if instead Ooh. of uh, the current setup around the parking lots there, we had Bernie Brewer's Beer Garden uh, right on the Menominee River there? So just a little bit of a thought experiment, thinking about what, what the what if uh, of the decision here. And you can read that piece uh, published in partnership with my friends over at Milwaukee Record. On so busy week.
1: Busy week. On average, how many times a week do you think you get tagged in a picture of someone in the recombobulation area at Mitchell Airport.
3: Yeah, it has certainly become a thing thing. now. Yeah, when people go through uh, and uh, go through security at the Milwaukee Airport, uh, put their things together, get their shoes back on, get their bags back together, people actually take time out of their busy travel schedule and take a selfie in front of the recombobulation sign post it on twitter and tag me in it i am i always love to see those images and now i feel like it has become such a thing i'm getting them multiple times a day really i think at this point where i always know when uh, when my friends online are traveling so.
1: well uh, we certainly did it a couple of weeks ago when we went to denver baby frankie got her first recon population first photo uh, and it, first photo and now
3: it's, it's part area. of milwaukee Give twitter star law. In your life
2: the brightest gift in the world name a star after them this is Rocky Moselle with International Star Oh, sorry, I'm hearing something in my headphones
1: right now that is playing. Well, coming up next, what do you, do you think star uh, star uh, What do you think when you, you think of the a word lobbyist? Uh, well, the numbers are in, and we are, of which, of which lobbying organizations or spent the most, the most money, money in Wisconsin, Wisconsin last, last year? Some may surprise you, but my big question is, where does all that money go? Peter Cameron from the Badger Project will join us when we come back. I'm Kristen Bry. He is Dan Schaefer, and this is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Oh. Well, welcome back to Spanning the State on WTMJ. I'm your host, Kristen Bry, along with Dan Schaefer, my guest co host for today. And when you think of the word lobbyist, what do you think of Dan?
3: I, I think of almost a cartoonish depiction of somebody in the shadows handing money to somebody in a in a, like a vacant parking lot or something like that. <laughs> you know, uh, it's always a very uh, very negative connotation. When you bring an, up the word it lobbyist. It always a
1: negative connotation, and I think of, and probably think
3: not without reason. Big you know.
1: pharma and big oil, but do you think brewers?
3: Do you think? Quick trip?
1: Do you think Children's Hospital of Wisconsin? (laughs) But joining us now to talk about who lobbies in Madison and how much they have been spending is Peter Cameron, who's the managing editor of the Badger Project. Welcome to the show, Peter.
2: Hi, guys. Good to be here.
1: So before we dive into who and how much, can you quickly, easily just summarize what lobbying is? Like, how does it
2: work? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's so it's, Communication with legislators and people in government to try and influence legislation and government action—it's a little bit more boring than uh, you know what you think of as legalized bribery. Um, It's important to note Wisconsin has very strict lobbying laws, so lobbyists cannot give anything of monetary value to the people they're lobbying, to legislators, to government officials—not even a cup of coffee. So that thing about, you know, like the, the stereotype of an envelope of cash going under the, under the door or whatever, that's illegal in Wisconsin. They can't do that.
1: They cannot do that. So there is not wads of cash being shoved in uh, our legislators' pockets.
3: <laughs> so this cartoonish, depiction, not legally. This cartoonish not legally. depiction that I have in my mind of, of lobbyists pulling the strings and, and handing envelopes and making shading deals in parking garages, that's, that's not how it works in Wisconsin?
2: they can make um lo- lobbyists can make campaign contributions but they are restricted so you or i can make a campaign contribution to any politician any candidate at any time um, lobbyists can only do it during the campaign so they can't do it um in session for you know which which could could be a considered a bribe maybe if you i'll give you a campaign contribution right now if you vote for this bill or give me this carve out or whatever so they can do that so
1: let's not bury the lead which Looking at last year, which organizations spent the most money and how much did they spend?
2: So the top lobbyist is uh, probably not that big of a surprise to, to people that pay attention to these kind of things. But it's the WMC, the Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, that's basically the Chamber of Commerce in Wisconsin. Very powerful group. Um, and they let's see, I've got the list in front of me. They, they spent about nine hundred grand, a little bit less than nine hundred grand. They have tons of of bills that they're interested in. So it's it's not that surprising that they're um, one of the top lobbyists, unlike, you know, some other groups on this list.
3: Yeah, this certainly seems like the state's largest business lobby being being on the top of this list. I think, you, you know, you at the Badger Project, you, this is a list that you do regularly, right? So I think, you know, in years past, they have topped uh, this list as well, correct?
2: Yeah, they're generally in the, the, the first, the, the biggest spender, as are the next two, which is the Wisconsin Hospital Association and the Wisconsin Realtors Association. And those, again, these aren't one-issue groups like the, like the Milwaukee Brewers are. These are, you know, they have tons of, of, of members and lots of different bills that they're trying to either promote or kill or get a little, uh, you know, cut some language in, to, a loophole, whatever it is. So there's just lots of... Uh, intricacies for what they're trying to do
1: so but in the top five is the milwaukee brewers who spent last year just shy of eight hundred thousand dollars so when we as we just established it's not wads of cash it's in into pockets it's not bribery it's only campaign donations during the campaign cycle so when we say they're spending this much money where does the money actually go to what are they spending the money on when we think that
2: so the brewers, uh, you uh, you have to. If you're a lobbyist, you have to regi- register with the state. The brewers have currently eight registered lobbyists. So that you're paying those people to. I mean, they get they need to go to committee meetings. They need to try and get in front of legislators and maybe the governor, probably the governor as well. So um, it's 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 a lot of prepping, and it's a lot of. I mean, I imagine sitting in committee meetings, traveling to these things, and just trying. I've I've spoken with lobbyists, and it's just hard sometimes. To get in front of, of legislators, they're busy, they might not want to talk to you as well. So it's again, not that exciting, but it's just trying to, to get your face time with, with these busy people.
1: So it's basically the pain, the people who are doing the work, like it's their salaries?
2: Uh, that's part of it. Yeah, Okay. that's part of it. I mean, they have to report everything that they, the, the money they spend and and the hours they spend, which is on the list as well.
3: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting list uh, that that you were able to put together. Uh, it also shows, you know, how effective lobbying can be. It, this is this is kind of an uncomfortable topic for a lot of people in a lot of ways, uh, and just how effective. Uh, that lobbying can be. But you mentioned that the Milwaukee Brewers rose uh, into the top ranks here. And and obviously, one of the biggest bills that passed in the state legislature over the past two year cycle was the bill to fund maintenance and upgrades at uh, American Family Field. You know, so what type of work? Uh, were the Brewers doing, you know, behind the scenes with with some of these lobbying efforts in Madison? How exactly, you know, does this work? And and were you surprised uh, to see the Brewers jump up so much from from past years?
2: One one thing I point out, I mean, is that the Bucks did this as well when they were, I think, 2015. I don't remember the exact year, but they got some money for the Pfizer forum, and they um, they haven't lobbied at all since they got that money. So, uh, I mean are the brewers going to continue lobbying now that they've got their, their money. So uh, one thing, uh, so they spent about $800,000 this year lobbying, paying their lobbyists to, to get what they wanted. And they got about, what did they get? $365 million, something like that.
3: So, I think altogether uh, through, pretty, from the state and locals, it was close to 500 million, right?
2: Yeah. From the town co- they got from Milwaukee County and the city of Milwaukee as well, but uh, from the state about 365, I right, think. Right. So yeah, good return on investment, but I mean yeah again as far as what they're doing it's 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 not that interesting it's just getting it's just getting in front of of these legislators negotiating um, yeah and, and, and figuring out what what's going to be in the, the end bill it's just a lot of that kind of thing I'm trying to remember there was in the in the Brewers bill where they got this money they also added on they tacked on surcharges on onto, onto tickets and so there's you know a lot of back and forth how much money are they going to get? It's a, a lot of minutiae,
1: a lot of minutiae. We're talking to Peter Cameron, who's the managing editor of the Badger Project, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit investigative journalism outlet in Wisconsin. We're going to take a break. He'll be with us when we come back. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State on WTMJ. I'm your host, Kristen Bry, along with Dan Schaefer. And we're talking to Peter Cameron, managing editor of the Badger Project, about the effectiveness of lobbying in Wisconsin. Now, Peter, we just outlined the story of a pretty good return on investment for the Milwaukee Brewers, who spent more than a million, about a million and a half dollars over the past nine years, ended up getting a lot of money from the state. Is there any other, in reporting on this, was there any other through lines you, f- you saw that the return on investment was similar as far as how much money was spent by any of these organizations and what they got out of it?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, the broad one. So the, uh, this is one that, that is probably well, maybe better for pe- for the average Joe, the average Jane, is the county of Milwaukee uh, did did a lot of lobbying. And they, they generally do, as did the Wisconsin Counties Association and the League of Wisconsin Min- Municipalities. All um, They were all... Uh, lobbying for shared revenue, which is uh, an, in, an increase from the state. Um, so all, every local government across the state got an increase in state funding. And that's really helping out with things like potholes and, and blacktopping roads and, and planting shrubs and trees and things. So that's something that, that where you can see your, I mean, these lobbying dollars going to help local governments and, and the average person. Um, and just another, I mean, Marquette University lobbies a lot. University of Wisconsin lobbies a lot and University of Wisconsin, especially they're, they're trying to get capital project. They're trying to get buildings built and things like that. And then uh, just one other thing I wanted to note is that uh, the Koch brothers are sort of the, the right wing boogeyman. They're on here um, in a different, a couple different places. There's the um, Americans for prosperity, which is their political action group. And there's also Koch government affairs. So they have various groups that are in uh, Wisconsin legislation in in the Wisconsin legislature, trying to get things that they want and, and and kill things that they don't want.
3: I think it's an interesting point to look back, because you mentioned the counties association, you mentioned the brewers. You know, this is kind of a snapshot of what some of the big bills were in the last legislative session, a session that is now wrapping up. So I think this reporting, this nonprofit uh, investigative work that you do at the Bradger Project is really important to shining a light on just how the sausage gets made. And I appreciate uh, the work that you're all
2: doing there. Thank you. Thanks for saying that.
1: You can check out this report and all the other investigations that the Badger Project is doing at thebadgerproject.org. Peter Cameron, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks,
2: guys. Have a good one.
1: Now, Dan, we had a question come in on the WTMJ talk and text line. It was something that we actually talked about last week. Someone texted in saying, how much merit is there to the Tavern League keeping the cannabis prohibition status quo? And you can actually answer that question yeah, that was
3: we're already calling back to previous episodes of spatting the state here, yeah, this was a a topic that i 've written about. Uh, in the past uh, was trying to figure out you know what who exactly is blocking uh marijuana legalization in the state everybody always brings up the tavern league and the tavern league was not registered as a as a lobbyist uh in opposition to any marijuana legalization efforts. People might have opinions of the tavern league for for a variety of things mm-hmm. uh but I think the their uh opposition to uh, how did the texter phrase it marijuana pro- prohibition uh was uh, Cannabis not, prohibition. Cannabis prohibition. Got to get the terminology correct here. Um, I, I I think their uh, their support of that uh, might not actually be so true based on uh, based on some of the lobbying records. And and I think uh, probably uh, Peter and the folks at the Badger Project uh, have seen that as well.
1: Was there any organizations on this list that surprised you? As someone who follows politics and legislation very closely,
3: yeah, I wouldn't say there's a whole lot surprising, but I, but I do think it's interesting when you see, you know, the the companies from Wisconsin that you you know might not associate with, uh, you know, the the grinding the gears of the political process and all that, but you see something like Quick Trip or Children's mm-hmm. Hospital or or somebody like that. I think it's always interesting to see, you know, just how. Connected these companies are not only just in our day-to-day lives as Wisconsinites, but connected to the political process in Madison as well
1: one of the more interesting articles I read recently is that parents need a Lobbying group and you know you think of ARP right? Yeah, you think of ARP and the Organization they have to advocate for their members in legislation that affects Aging populations. And I saw a really interesting article about being able to create a lobbying firm that organizes around legislation that affects parents. And we see it a lot just in the state of Wisconsin right now when we talk about childcare and paid family leave and things that we find it harder and harder as parents. A new parent of a young baby, you have two young children, yeah. and I, I don't even know what would go into creating that. Like, who would organize that? How would it be funded? And that's kind of the other things that get advocated for that maybe don't have a voice right now in an Organized, well-funded way. We
3: need like an exhausted parents lobbying group. The shred of when we're <laughs> up at three in the morning, trying to get our kids back to sleep. Uh, you know, the, what type of issues speak to that demographic? What, you what's know? the
1: fun acronym we could come up with for that group? And the, the fun ways like bills get that into Washington and that are always an acronym for the save dairy yeah. act or something like that, that actually yeah. spells out dairy.
3: <laughs> yeah. There's always T- TMI with those too many, or TMA T- too many acronyms. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, coming up on spanning the state, Wisconsin women pilots of the past and the future. I am Kristen Bry. He is Dan Schaefer. Citing unlimited and news time is one thirty. ABC News and local headlines are next.
2: They took me down to the airport to see all the planes departing, watching them fly. Something inside of me was starting. I was eight when I told him that I'd be a pilot.
1: But I was too young. Welcome back. I am Kristen Bright. He is Dan Schaefer. Dan, you have two daughters.
3: I do, yeah. I'm a girl dad. I have girl two dad. daughters. Two young daughters.
1: Have either of them showed any interest in planes?
3: Planes? Well, I would say... Airplanes. Airplanes. So my youngest is exceptional at spotting a plane. Ooh, so if okay. we're driving in the car, she'll say airplane and be like, very tiny airplane way out on the horizon, and she spots it. And my oldest... I don't know if she's necessarily interested in airplanes, but she's always interested in, in the first women to do things. So oh, she's like okay. at school right now. She just says she's, wants to be the first girl president, she said. She she always wants to be the first. She's very interested in these firsts. So, so I think, you know, there are, there are still some firsts with women in aviation, right?
1: I don't know there's still some first i maybe we can ask our next guest about it but we're going to be talking to cindy Picorni from eaa about their efforts to get young girls interested in aviation and so i went down a rabbit hole knowing that we were going to be talking to cindy of what do i know about female pilots and who's the first person you ever think of when you think of a a woman pilot pilot amelia yeah of course right and but then as a musical fan which listeners will soon to learn that I am a huge nerd when it comes to musical theater. Musical theater, And there's a musical called Come From Away, which we were just playing the song from, that is based on the events... And you were really
3: vibing, too, as oh, they were playing the song here. You would've. were getting into it.
1: This is a prime time, especially if we're going to bump out with that music, too, a prime time <laughs> to text WATCH to the WTMJ <laughs> talk and text line, 855-616-1620, because I will lip-sync hard. And, but the Come From Away is based on the events of... A Newfoundland town called Gander that during the week of 9-11, back in 2001, during the attacks, 38 planes carrying thousands of people were forced to land there. And it's the story of how a community came together and people from all over the world were there and how they they hosted these people. And one of the characters is the real life person, Beverly Bass, who was the first female captain of a commercial plane. American Airlines so there's a a first for Ada but she also captained the first all-female crew in history of commercial jet aviation and she was one of the pilots who got landed who was deep like had to land in in Gander and it's I thought of this song of her being attracted to the sky and what that attraction is that it's like I have to be a pilot I am born to do this and then I went down a further rabbit hole trying to find Wisconsin connections. And... This is a real
3: deep dive that you went on oh, here. this is this we is... got
1: we started here, and we're going we're going to the Wisconsin women who were among the first female military air aircraft pilots. And when do you think that started?
3: Oh gosh, uh, I'm bad at guessing these things. I don't know. Gut instinct. Uh, first, so first female airline pilots.
1: No, so it was the first, uh, military aircraft pilot. First
3: military, um, World War II.
1: Good guess. So I went down this rabbit hole of a new, a league of their own. So last week we were talking about a league of their own and the connection to Wisconsin and women playing baseball while men were overseas. And this was similar that there were so many men fighting overseas that the government started an experimental program to train women pilots And there was about 1,100 who flew nearly every type of aircraft as volunteer civilian pilots. That's
3: so fascinating. And
1: there were some different stories. I don't think WPR, there was a, a profiled different women who were part of this group. And so there's your Wisconsin connection to female aviation.
3: <laughs> there's always a Wisconsin. I love how there's always a Wisconsin connection to everything. No matter the topic, you can always find uh, a Wisconsin connection. I feel like it's, it's like somehow we're at the nexus of the universe, whether it's aviation, whether it's basketball, whether it's so many different stories, there's always a Wisconsin us. connection. Yes, yeah, exactly. that's right. Wisconsin
1: loves Wisconsin. That is the that's one thing right. that I know for sure. <laughs> so true. now EAA is trying to recruit the next generation of young Women who love aviation. So, when we come back, we will hear more about Girls on the Fly in Oshkosh coming up soon and how they're working to put more young women into the sky. I am Kristen Bry, he is Dan Schaefer, and this is Spanning the State. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Dan Schaefer. And women in flying. I think despite it seems like the gender gap is closing in a lot of professions. I know there's always numbers as far as how many more women are uh, graduating from medical school and plenty of lawyers. But pilots is one that I still think my brain still defaults to being pretty male-dominated. And our next guest will maybe be able to answer that, whether that's a narrative or if that's real. But on the phone with us is Cindy Picorni, who works for the Youth Education Center at EAA. Thanks for spending time with us today, Cindy.
4: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Kristen and Dan.
1: So you have a great event coming up that we're going to get to. But there's, like I just said, there's all these industries where the gender gap is closing. Is that the same in aviation or is that just kind of a a myth?
5: It is
4: in aviation. So women make up about 47% of the total workforce in the United States. Professional female pilots constitute just 5% of the piloting workforce. Five. Wow. Yeah.
3: So a huge yeah. gap, not just a gap, huge but a huge, gap. huge, it, huge gap.
4: It's, it's a huge gap. You know, you were talking about the pilots during World War II, and you would think at that time that, that we would have made huge gains in, in that area, but we did not. So that's what we're working So that's what we're here. working
1: on. And so mm-hmm. why, why, why do we still think that if it, there's, is it just because women are not as interested? Where, what's causing that? This is one of the industries that we're not making as much progress in.
4: I think it's a number of factors. Um, women not seeing as many other women in aviation is one of the things. And anytime you can see yourself doing that thing, seeing somebody like you, whether you're a woman or you're a person of color. If you see somebody like you doing that thing, you think it's more possible for you. And we we still just don't have a lot of that. And I think the other thing, there are a lot of people who still um, conform to these these old-fashioned gender roles that, that women and men are meant to do certain things. And um, aviation is an amazing and supportive community, but there are there are still a number of people who think women should not be doing this thing, so...
3: So it, it's another example of how representation matters. It's another example of see, seeing a woman. Matter. You know, if, if, uh, if my daughters were to, to see a pilot, a woman pilot behind the wheel uh, at, on an airplane, they might you might see things a little bit differently. So that's, what, that's exactly. part of what you're and, working on here.
4: Right. And, and not just in the cockpit of an airplane, but anywhere in aviation. You know, when we talk about 5% of professional pilots are women, um, mechanics. Aviation mechanics make up just 2.7% of that workforce. Women make up 2.7% of, of the mechanic workforce in aviation. So it's, yeah, there are opportunities for women in aviation uh, go, galore. Galore. But galore. Um, we, we have to help them see that it is a place for them and a place where they can be successful and be leaders. Because as you
1: said, you, uh, a profession that people just default at, other oh, men are better at it. But yep, yep. what? what makes a good pilot? Is there, is this like a science and art thing? Is there innate skill in it or is it just passion that really drives someone to be well, good at this?
4: Passion is absolutely necessary because the, the road or runway, shall we say, to becoming a professional pilot is long and requires a lot of hours. Even to train as a private pilot, you need quite a bit of passion and studying and determination. And you have to be okay with learning and making mistakes and and correcting those mistakes. Um, you, you've you got to be okay kind of putting yourself out there and being, being vulnerable while you're learning.
1: So EA is doing a lot of work to try to recruit more women mm-hmm. into, not only as a profession, but also even just as a hobby. So coming up soon, you have Girls on the Fly event, and tell us mm-hmm. more about that. So Girls on the Fly
4: is a one-day event that um, we started last year. We did it twice, and we have a wait list. Um, We had a wait list for both events. And so we're continuing it and looking forward. We're going to do this twice a year. It's one day. It's free. We have some generous sponsors who pay for the day, pay for lunch. And the girls can come and get hands on, get some experiences and see other women in aviation um, doing the things that they might want to do, whether it's as a hobby or a career.
1: And is registration still open?
4: We do. We have twelve slots left, Ooh. so we're limited to sixty people. We have twelve slots left as of today, um, and
3: let's get some spanning the state this, listeners to fill those final yeah, twelve spots yeah. for you here. We,
4: you know, and we have some people coming who have registered. They're coming from Minnesota, coming from Illinois, so it's definitely worth the drive. Um, so, in this, the event this year, girls will have a number of things they get to do. They're going to take a tower of the famous Oshkosh air traffic control tower. Um, If the weather's good, they'll take a Young Eagles flight, which is like a first experience flight with a Young Eagles pilot. They get to build an RC plane with some uh, female pilots from an, an organization called the 99s, and they get to take that RC plane home with them. They get to fly in our Redbird simulators, which are the simulators real pilots train on um, especially during air venture and then they're going to get hands-on with some engines they're going to take some engines apart and and do a little bit of testing with those
1: very cool and we also had someone text in and that talking about the women venture day that eaa does as well yep so ea d- still
4: does other things for women so during air venture uh we celebrate all women during women venture and so that's you that's the wednesday of air venture um and when you get to, when you register, you get a free T-shirt and um, women in aviation. I mean, there really are not that many women in aviation, um, and so we really join up as a community and take pride. Um, any woman who is in aviation, whether she's a pilot or not, and we also actually during AirVenture have a camp called Girl Venture and that's a four-day day camp that starts on the Monday of AirVenture or the Sunday of AirVenture. So, um, lots of things going on here for for women who want to dip their toes into aviation and see what it's about.
1: Well, Girls on the Fly is coming up on April 6th. If you would like to yep. fill one of those 12 spots, eaa.org slash girls on the fly. Cindy Picorny, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. Newstime is one fifty. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry. He is Dan Schaefer. So it's Leap Day. Today is Leap Day. But do you know what? Real life
3: is for March. Also... That's the line from Dirty Rock when they did an episode on Leap Day.
1: Oh, good memory. Yeah. It's also the fourth anniversary, or I guess the first anniversary, depending on how you look at it, at the first U.S. COVID death. So the first U.S. COVID death happened on February 29th. On 20,
4: February 20, 20, 20. It happened
1: on twenty. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that wild? Isn't it like is that a weird wild. fact?
3: It's it's just like this fluke out of nowhere event. And it happened on a once every a day four that only years.
1: exists. Once yeah. every four years. It, it, I just can't believe how much life has happened since the beginning of COVID. I it's was still a, living in a Los Angeles at the time. I was getting ready to come back for Wisconsin, which I, what I thought was going to be a short trip. And there was murmurs about stuff. But what were you doing yeah, it's like four a, years ago? It's like
3: a lifetime has happened in those four years. But yeah, at, it, the on the day uh, that, you know, kind of the world shut down and the NBA canceled lo- all their games and Tom Hanks had COVID and all these different things. I, I was at Pfizer Forum for a concert. So oh, wait, I was, who were you saying? I was seeing my wife's a big fan of the Lumineers. I like the Lumineers. So we, we went, I got her tickets for, for Christmas and, and we were going to the show and, and we kind of didn't know what was going on in the world then and it's like, well we'll just go and, and you know and, and see what's see what's going on. And so we get there, we get down sit in our seats and uh, my wife goes to, you know, go grab a drink or something like that, and I check my phone and as I'm checking my phone, it was in that moment that they canceled the NBA season and and all of the news just started to go crazy uh, all at once and I'm looking around thinking should we be here should we leave that what was your
1: w- instinct of ooh, maybe we should not well be in it was, public it, right was now. So,
3: it was so there was so much confusion at the time and nobody really know, knew what was happening and I, but I do remember leaving there thinking this might be the last time we're in a place like this in in quite some time
1: that's funny that you immediately maybe this is despite Having studied some public health in undergrad, my mind did not go to, oh, they're going to shut everything down.
3: Yeah, I was following things pretty closely at the time. And and I didn't I was starting to see some of the reports out of Europe. And it was just like, I think it's going here. I don't know what this is going to mean, but it might mean that things are going to be very different for the foreseeable future.
1: I do remember when they shut the NBA down and they also shut March Madness down. That was right. the last year that the, the, the simulator said that the UW Badgers would have won the March madness in 2020. And Hang so they make, I remember yeah. making. Uh, there was shirts made as far as, you know, with the asterisks at the bottom, like, well, we didn't actually win, but this AI said that we would have. And, so, and, and the
3: bucks were the best team in the NBA at that yeah. point. Yeah.
1: And so. so I remember when the NBA closed down, I was when it felt very serious. Cause that's a lot of money to not make. And whenever decisions of we're going to lose money, we're gonna choose that over continuing this. You know, yeah. it's pretty serious,
3: right? And I think there were speeches being made at the White House about like the two weeks to stop the spread, which was the the line at the time that was happening. Uh, so it, it was like in that moment, as I checked my phone, sitting surrounded by thousands of people at Pfizer forum That's when that's when it all hit me that it was all it was all getting very real and it was all happening right Wild. in front of us. Yeah.
1: Well, four years ago. That's that's a lot that's happened since then. But coming up in the next hour, what would you do if your water was brown and smelled a little fishy, but you kept being told nothing was wrong? Maybe you would call your neighborhood public investigator who can find out what the issue is. Uh, And then public transit, if you build it, will they come? Dan Schaefer says yes. Do you say yes? I sure do. You sure do say yes. All right. This is Spanning the State. We'll be back after the news. 65,498
3: square miles. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get to it. This
2: is Spanning the State. Here's your host, Kristen Bry.
1: Good afternoon. I am Kristen Bry, and my guest co host for today on Thursday is Dan Schaefer, founder of the the Recombobulation Area. Dan, one hour done.
3: One hour done. Kristen, uh, very excited to be here for spanning the debate. Very excited to recombobulate with you here on the airwaves on 620 WTMJ.
1: If you missed any part of our first hour, you can always go listen to the podcast on WTMJ.com on the Spanning the State site or wherever you find your podcast. But you can also always watch us. You can text WATCH to the WTMJ Talk and Text Line 855-616-1620. And we will send you a link to watch us live in our studio downtown at the Avenue. And Dan, what would you do if all of a sudden your water was little brown, smelled a little funny, what would your first course of action be? Uh,
3: I think I'd probably start by freaking out a little bit. I think we all know what water is supposed to look like. So if water was coming out brown, uh, I'd be a little bit freaked out, I think.
1: Yeah. and Depending on what part, if you visit someone's cabin, you know, usually sometimes it's a little more irony and you're expecting it. You're like, I'll brush my teeth this, but I'm probably not drinking it straight from the faucet. But when it's your house that you live in all the time and you realize... This is not what the water is supposed to be like. But everyone you keep talking to says it's fine. It's a little concerning.
3: It's It, it sounds like one of those movies where only one guy has the truth and it's like no one will believe them or something <laughs> like that. Right.
1: Well, and it's funny because this story came out in the same week as Columbus, Wisconsin winning the best tasting water in America. And I know, uh, I think Wisconsin's Afternoon News had the Columbus mayor on last week talking about why their water is so good. But you go a little bit further north to Cleveland, which is in Manitowoc County, and...
3: Not Cleveland, Ohio, not, just to be not clear. Not Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah, not,
1: Cle- not not welcome to Cleveland house uh, near Mitchell Airport to screw with uh, people landing in Milwaukee, but a little bit further north, Cleveland in Manitowoc County, and people saying we can't trust the water. So Quinn Clark from Journal Sentinel wrote a story and did a little bit of investigating into the village of Cleveland and the residents there saying that they have dealt with brown, quote, fishy water for years.
3: It's a pretty concerning story. It's a pretty concerning I mean, it's story. the fact that, that it's been happening for as long as it has. And it's just now getting this kind of attention is, is really something.
1: And it's a little concerning that there's still no answer yeah. Very concerning. The story, the I'm excited story to hear from Quinn without to any see any what any kind exa- of solution as far as what was found. So we will have that story for you coming up with Quinn Clark when we come back on Spanning the State. Go
2: near the water. Don't you think it's sad? What's happened to the water? Our going
6: bad. Welcome
1: back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry. He is Dan Schaefer. What would you do if your water was brown and smelled kind of bad, but you couldn't get a straight answer from any officials? Well, that's what's been happening in Cleveland, Wisconsin, up in Manitowoc County, and Quinn Clark from Journal Sentinel has been investigating it. So, Quinn, thanks for being here. What is going on in Cleveland?
5: Hi, thanks for having me. Um yeah in cleveland residents are struggling to trust their water it it unexpectedly will run brown or yellow um, and that's usually accompanied by a fishy smell Uh, doesn't matter what temperature the water is or what time of day it's pretty unexpected Um, two residents in particular who i've spoken to say that while officials told them it's not a widespread issue um, just by looking on their community facebook page or just speaking to others in the village Um, that they're not the only ones. And how long
1: has this been going on? This isn't just a recent thing.
5: Um, So for the residents I've spoken to, it's been an on and off problem for several years, but the DNR uh, says that they've tracked complaints of discolored water in at least one area of the village since 2007. 2007.
1: So that is well over, that's over 15 years.
5: Yes, the DNR said it's most likely an aesthetic issue caused by stagnant water um, and caused by water main breaks, Um, but, yeah, it's been since 2007.
1: So between the DNR and also the village, everyone's just kind of thrown their hands up and been like, this is just how it is. Sorry.
5: Um, Well, the village said that it's not a widespread issue, and for places that do have the issue, for areas of the village that have it, they turn to hydrant flushing. So um, it's a quick release of water from the fire hydrants in hopes to help the water run clear again. Um, but for the people that I spoke to, um, that hasn't helped. It can help temporarily, maybe for a couple days, but it isn't a permanent solution. Um, most recently, they, the village replaced the water pipes as part of a project that was completed last year. Um, and the DNR said this project was done to decrease the breaks in the pipes that cause discolored water. Um, however, because this project increases water bills by 65 percent, um, it raises red flags to residents, especially if it doesn't work or improve, you know, the problems they've been having.
3: Yeah, it seems like there's there's red flags on top of red flags here, right? And and I think one of the one of the things you mentioned here that has to be really concerning for the people living in the village of cleveland here is that it is unexpectedly changing can you tell me a day you know is it clear sometimes and then discolored other times and is there any explanation behind why that change might be happening
5: in one day it can even be changing so um scott one of the people that i spoke to from cleveland sent me a picture of a bunch of different mugs full of water, and it was from different times of the day, and one was clear, and then one was brown, one was yellow. So, um, yeah, it is unexpected, and it makes them pretty anxious because they don't know what they're going to get that day. Um, the village has said, you know, it could be because you need to replace some parts of your water heater, and that could be causing it, but um, even when the water heater isn't in use. It's cold water, it can still happen.
1: Who's ultimately responsible for this? Is it? Would it be the village? I know the DNR has been involved since 2007, but when the rubber hits the road, who is responsible for our water being safe and clean?
5: Well, there are laws put in place by the Environmental Protection Agency that require, um, if you're on a public water system, the water suppliers required to um, test it annually. Um, but in a village like this, it really is up to the utilities department, the public works director. Um, it is it is definitely a local thing when it comes to if they have a problem, they call their local officials, and they're the ones that deal with it.
3: So you published this story at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, what, about 10 days ago now. What what has the, been the reaction like for the, for the people you talk to, for the people in the village of Cleveland, uh, since this story was published?
5: I think that people were surprised that it was, some people were surprised that it was published because, like I said, a lot of people were told that it wasn't a widespread issue and they thought they were the only one. So a common thing I'll hear is, oh, I thought I was the only one, but it looks like I'm not. So... More and more people are emailing me their stories of how long they've dealt with the water being uh, brown or yellow and uh, with a fishy smell. Um, And I think that at first, the two people that I interviewed, they were 100 percent sure if a lot of other people were going to come forward. And um, to their surprise, a lot of people did.
1: And part of your investigation, you Ordered new tests, and that are, the results are still pending. But what were the difference? What's the difference between the tests that you ordered versus what's typically been done annually?
5: Right. So the required annual water tests are taken from the source, but they're not taken straight from residents' faucets. Um, and materials can be picked up in the pipes along the way to people's faucets. So a groundwater special, specialist that I spoke to viewed videos and pictures of the discolored water. And he said it could be because of a high level of manganese or iron picked up along the way. So these could just be an aesthetic issue, um, nothing to worry about, but it's worth it to test for high levels of manganese because um, high concentrations can be risky to um, infants and people over the age of 50.
3: So if people saw this happen in their their home and saw saw some discolored, fishy-smelling water coming out of their faucet at their home, you know, having gone through and reported this story and, and talked to a number of people, wh- what should people do if they encounter something similarly?
5: I think it people should check if they're on a public water system to look at their um, consumer confidence report, which can be found on the Wisconsin DNR's uh, drinking water system portal, or it also can be found on the EPA's search tool. So, check that out. It can can give you some peace of mind um, if nothing's in violation. It'll give you some peace of mind. Um, And then if you are still concerned um, and the problem isn't going away, there are also ways to order a test at home. Um, So there's labs that the DNR recommends on their website, and you can find a Wisconsin trusted lab where you can conduct your own test at home. Um, But definitely notify your Uh, local officials, because that's something that a lot of people have been saying to each other in Cleveland is make sure you tell the utilities or make sure you tell the local officials so they have this on record. And we know that they're trying to look into it.
1: Quinn Clark is a public investigator with the Journal Sentinel. Thanks so much for your time today.
5: Thank you so much.
1: Newstime is 220. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Dan Schaefer. And Dan is here on Thursdays with me. And as you might imagine, we don't just come up with this show on the fly. There's some preparation that goes into it. Scanning the news, trying to find stories from across the state, finding stories in our backyard. And Dan texted me this week and he said, do you want to do a segment about the BRT for Thursday? And I'm juggling a lot. And I racked my brain for what BRT could stand for. And then I said, I texted back, quite honestly. What is BRT? <laughs> so what is BRT? So again,
3: Dan? we got a we got an opportunity not just to help our listeners understand this, have an opportunity to to have, have host. our host yes. understand uh, what's going on here with BRT, which stands for bus rapid transit. Ah, so bus rapid transit, uh, new to Milwaukee uh, within the past twelve months. Here, uh, the first bus rapid transit line, uh, Connect One, launched last summer. I took it here today. I, I live on the west side of Milwaukee, so I took the took the connect one uh, here downtown to the third Street market hall How studios long does that today take, then? so it took me about 10 minutes to walk to the BRT from from my house on the west side and then it just took about 15 minutes to get from story Hill the story Hill stop uh, where I picked up the bus to take it uh, down here downtown so pretty smooth easy ride didn't have to mess with parking didn't have to pay any extra it was. It just had to get off the bus and walk in the door. Pretty so simple. You're a fan. You're a I'm fan a, of I'm the I'm Connect I'm a big one. fan. I'm a big fan of the Connect one. I'm a big fan. Because you uh, guys are of, a
1: one car family, right? Yeah, we,
3: we are a one car household. Yeah. So that sometimes that will mean, you know, we might have to might have to take an Uber in a pinch or something like that. But I think when it's coming downtown or something like that, when I come downtown, it's it's always easier for me to just hop on a bus. Whether I'm going to a Bucks game, whether I'm coming down here, uh, it's it's very easy to, to get on a bus and come down town and uh, some news this week with the with the bus rapid transit uh, you know there the connect one is the east-west the one that I took today there's talk for a connect Two routes, so going to have an additional bus rapid transit route. There were uh, public the first round of public meetings uh, for that held this week, and and so bus rapid transit basically it's just a greater frequency for the bus coming to a stop. I think is the main difference between a bus rapid transit route and any other type of typical. Bus route, and so now there are you know a number of these higher frequency routes throughout Milwaukee County. A lot of the a lot of the names will be color names, so you have the green line or the purple line, or the blue line, uh, whatever it might be. So there are sixteen high frequency routes in the Milwaukee County Transit System. I, I'll put you on the spot here. Guess how many riders do you think take those routes every day? Those sixteen routes. I'm
1: going to blow this. Twenty-five thousand.
3: Okay, so it is much more than that. It's 52,000 okay, so in, in 2022. Date,
1: so those are daily riders.
3: Those are daily riders. So I think we often overlook in Milwaukee County how many people are taking the bus every day. There's more than 50,000 people, and that's just on the high-frequency routes, 50,000 people that are taking those routes every single day. That's a huge number of people within Milwaukee County, and I think we often overlook how big of a piece of the you know transit uh, you know, the commuter landscape, whatever it might be, that the Milwaukee County transit system often is.
1: But how do you put that number into context? Because I don't know. You've you've reported on this way more than I, I haven't reported on it at all because I'm not a reporter. But as far as putting it is, how does that compare to other cities our size? How does that compare to the number of people who live in Milwaukee County? How do we judge these numbers of what is adequate, high, low? Ridership.
3: Yeah, it is hard to judge, especially with all the change that has happened in you know in the transit universe in the past few years. You know, during COVID, obviously those numbers plummeted. Things have been built back up since last year saw the first you know pretty significant increase in ridership in Milwaukee uh, in quite some time, and the Connect One was a piece of that. And I think uh, the Connect One's uh, ridership was exceeded expectations. It was averaging thirty five hundred riders per day, and I think as we've We look ahead to you know a success as we look at that success story. Look ahead to additional potential bus rapid transit routes. I think it's really interesting to to project you know how that increase might might come there. The purple line is is basically uh, the route that that this BRT is proposed for. The BRT would be running uh, basically the entire length of Milwaukee County north south. So it would start at Bayshore go pretty much most of the way along 27th Street north-south and end at Ikea and Oak Creek. So all the way from the north end of Milwaukee County to the south end I'm of Milwaukee County. I'm now
1: imagining someone going to Ikea and coming back on the bus with all those boxes of things that are going to go <laughs> with build at home. All those
3: boxes, that's right. Yeah, so this proposal is a $148 million investment uh, and provides access to... Twenty-five thousand business, or twenty-five hundred businesses, and more than fifty thousand jobs. So this is a huge part. This would be a huge opportunity to connect uh, many different parts of Milwaukee County. You know, people getting to work, people getting around, people go, going to the doctor, getting around, all all the different things you might do over the course of the day. And I think. Having having greater frequency where you don't have to plan ahead and say, "Okay, my bus is coming at 515. I have to be there. Then you can just go to the stop and there will be a bus coming within the next 10 minutes.
1: So what has the public hearing been about?
3: So the, the public meetings have just been kind of to unveil and, and discuss uh, some what exactly the details are on this route, because this has been in the planning stages for quite some time. This Milwaukee north-south route has been uh, in the planning stages for quite some time. So there's going to be a committee meeting next week. I believe, uh, at the Milwaukee County Board that will vote on the preferred route. So if people, you know, are, are happy with the, the route going from Bakeshore uh, all the way along 27th Street, all the way to Oak Creek, you know, the, the committee will, will vote up and down uh, to see what exactly they might want to do going forward.
1: Well, you have an interesting question in comparison to this versus the streetcar. So we will talk about that after the news. Sighting Unlimited news time is 2.30. ABC News and local headlines are next. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Dan Schaefer talking about bas- uh, the bus rapid transit and joining us who was reported on the public hearing yesterday on this uh, new bus line is Adam Roberts. And you're both use the bus a lot oh yeah I am not someone who uses the bus a lot I when I lived in San Francisco I used the bus when I lived in New York I used the train all the time so I am certainly not I would like to live in a place where you don't have to live in a car or like live in your car or be in your car all the time parking all those different things since moving back to Wisconsin I have a car so I use my car and especially now having a kid it's a lot easier to put that car seat in there and not deal with it Why is this story important? Why is the development of a new bus line important for those of us who like the convenience of our vehicle?
6: So for some context, Kristen, we obviously if you live in Milwaukee County, you've seen likely the blue BEB buses going down Wisconsin Avenue. So we have one route already that runs east to west. And now we're having one, as you and Dan mentioned before the break, that is being planned north to south along 27th Street. What I see, as I've covered this and other transit-related stories over the last few years, one of the most important sticking points is the amount of people along this corridor who live close enough to it that they can walk to a bus stop who already don't have their own access to vehicles. This line is within a very heavily non-car-using sector of Milwaukee and Milwaukee County. If you go north into Glendale, south into the Franklin area, much of it is people who it's my heavily minority population and they don't have their own vehicle. And so a lot of this is enhancing what already exists on that route with the purple line that exists there already and expanding opportunities for people to have a quicker way to get North and South where they need to
3: go. Yeah. I think in so many ways, you know, transit can represent economic mobility in the region. I think there can be a disconnect with, you know, how people get to work. Uh, And I think if people are able to, you know, access a new job or whatever it might be through without having to buy a car to do that. I think that can be an economic driver for for people of all walks of life. And I think there are so many different ways we can we can look at that. And I think of these bus rapid transit routes, being that they are so new, you know, in the Milwaukee area, You know, transit transit projects can be often pretty contentious uh, in the region. We had about a decade of debate about the streetcar and about whether that is, you know, a good project. We just heard, you know, in the news right before we came back here that the ridership for the streetcar is up. But I think if you're looking at, you know, an either or and not that it necessarily should be, but if you're looking at either bus rapid transit or expanding the streetcar, I think that's an interesting decision because I think if you look at the, what's planned here for the north-south line, you have thousands of thousands of people in a lot of these neighborhoods where there are there is some economic issues happening and there are people who might not have access to a car. And I think if these bus rapid transit routes are not going to be as controversial as perhaps the streetcar was – I think we should go all in and try and do as many of these as possible because, again, it's economic mobility. It's it's a way to get around in the region. It's a way to reduce congestion on the highways, and it's a it's an efficient and safe and affordable way to get around.
1: And what does it look like to develop a bus route? Because, of course, they're already using the streets that we all are using. It's not like you're laying track as you have to do for a train or for the streetcar. So is it just a matter of putting signs up? Or what is, what is the development of a bus line look like?
6: So with BRT, Kristen, it's it differs from what you would say is a prototypical bus stop. If, if you look, and actually we have one uh, station being developed just down the street from us here uh, across from the convention center, there are sort of raised stations that are being constructed. And if you go down Wisconsin Avenue, you'll see any number of them. So that is part of the construction process. And The other thing about BRT, and we've seen it in Milwaukee, and it will be a part at least of about 80 percent of, at least in the conceptual phase, this new line, are bus-only lanes. And I know personally in other cities they do it a little differently than we do in terms of separating those lanes even more so, whereas here it's basically just bus-only, bus-only painted, and then it's basically the honor system that there won't be a line of cars driving in it. However, that is another point. It is Milwaukee. You never know. So that's another component of it as well.
1: Well, this is very interesting. So this is not a if it happens. This is going to happen.
6: So right now uh, we're in, I think, phase two of four in terms of where MCTS, the transit system, wants this to be. So it's an environmental review and development phase right now. The target timeline for this would have construction starting in 2026. So we're a couple years out from that. And then if all would go according to plan, and obviously there's plenty between now and then, but ideally, speaking with manager of Enhanced Transit, what a title, David Loker, he says they're targeting 2028 for the first passengers to be picked up.
1: All right. Well, Adam Roberts, thank you for joining us. There yeah.
3: is one more open house uh, for that happening today right after our show. And so there is an uh, open house from 3 to 6 p.m. at the Century City Tower on 27th Street in Milwaukee, where you can go learn more about what this route might mean for you.
1: All right. Well, when we come back, a very special day for lots of reasons, but especially for people who were born today that it only happens every four years. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry, He is Dan Schaefer. And it's Leap Day, a special day for a lot of reasons, but probably the most special for those who are only finally now getting to celebrate for th- their birthday, really, for the first time in four years. And you uh, brought it to my attention that there's one very special Wisconsin native who is one of those people.
3: Yeah, a, fam- a famous Wisconsinite who was born on Leap Day. Uh, so happy sixth birthday to Tyrese Halberton. Happy your six. birthday,
6: how it, how it falls on, onto yeah. the leap year. So you've, five, five birthdays. Is that factual? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Next year will be six. Next year it'll be six. Okay. Yeah. So wh- which one's been your your me- most memorable so far? Uh,
5: <laughs> that's a great question. Probably, probably five. Probably five because it was. Uh, yeah, I was in the NBA at that time. Okay. Or getting to the NBA at
1: that time. Oh, so. you at? Yeah. Twenty. Twenty. It was okay. twenty. So gotcha. I was getting to the NBA at the time. So yeah, definitely meant the world. Tyrese Halliburton, who plays for Indianapolis and is an NBA All-Star, and that is, that's clip is from Spalone Sports from about a year ago, so he is, he got his sixth he birthday He was really today. looking
3: forward to it, you know, he's looking forward to that sixth birthday. He Yeah, he was born on February 29th, 2000, uh, and so now he's, he's celebrating his sixth birthday. Uh, Tyrese Halliburton, Oshkosh native, Oshkosh North grad, uh, and now one of the Great new rising stars in the NBA, uh, and so now I, I feel like every leap day now I'm going to think of this. Probably that Tyrese Halliburton is is turning. You know, in four years he'll be turning seven.
1: All right, but what makes leap year so special? Here's a Debbie Log- a, a Log- a, <laughs> Here's Debbie with some more fun facts about Le- leap. Welcome back to Spanning the States. I am Kristen Bright. He is Dan Schaefer. Dan, thank you so much for spending time with us today.
3: Thank you for having me. Happy to be here on Leap Day. So On Leap, Leap day. day. It's a
1: very you. special, special day, especially for the Leaplings. I did not realize that was what they uh they are called. Didn't you tell me at break that your dad is February twenty eighth?
3: Yep. Yeah, and, and so people and people think, always ask him if he is uh, if he's a leap date, and obviously the answer is more often than not no. But more often yeah. than
1: not no. But uh, any b- big bucks news lately that you're very excited about?
3: You know, I'm excited about this winning streak that's been going on. They've won every game since the All Star break. The defense is starting to come together. I don't know. I guess the Bucks are recombobulating a little bit. In you always a way. get a,
1: You always find a way. I always find a find way. a way to put it bring it back. That yeah. well, John McHugh, Julio Othello... What do you guys have coming up today on the afternoon news?
0: It was the cutest thing today on the Today Show. They had a bunch of tables and they had people born on leap year. And then for each of those people, they had a birthday cake. So there was a guy who was like 85 years old and had 16 on the cake. Nice. And and they all talked about how they're really 16 and they're really 11. And they had a little girl who was one, but really she was four. It was really, really cute. That's so, great. Uh, we will talk a little bit about Leap Day today, some of the fun things that you can do to celebrate Leap Day. We're going to dive into that.
5: Yeah, and I'll be talking about my housing woes of buying a house. Oh. I learned buy the house, date the interest rate. So Gotta we'll do talk it. more about that with the realtor later.
0: Uh, that plus many other things coming up this afternoon. President Biden and Donald Trump both at the border on the same day, which is kind of a weird and interesting deal we'll go live to the border actually this afternoon on the show where both men are showing up today so we've got that for you and IVF the debate that's been happening in Alabama where they've said that embryos are children and they should be treated that way and now the Alabama legislature has said you know what IVF is not against the law IVF is fine and they've said we will protect IVF but it's raising the debate and this is a tough topic to talk about but we're going to have a fertility expert who's going to join us in the studio and we will kind of talk through the whole IVF thing and I'm excited because we just got done interviewing a professional bull rider oh, and that the was cool event is coming to Milwaukee in about 10 days Connor Halverson 22 years old toughest dude you'll probably ever meet so we're going to share that interview with you Yeah, It'll we talked fun.
5: about his revenue how much he makes every year and... how often he gets hurt Uh, Yeah, he answers that question, too. I had a million questions for him.
0: It was so fun. So we'll do that this afternoon. And in addition to all of that, Charles Benson, the brightest political mind, I think, in Wisconsin from a journalism standpoint, will be with us. CB joins us live at 515 this afternoon. Lots of good stuff coming up. It's 257 on WTMJ.